Welcome to this eHIV Review podcast. eHIV Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This program is supported by educational grants from Abbott Laboratories, Oringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Today's program is a companion piece to our Volume 1, Issue 3, eHIV Review newsletter, Linkage and Retention in HIV Medical Care. Our guest today is one of that issue's authors, Dr. Michael Mugavero from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. This activity has been developed for infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare providers whose practice includes treating HIV patients. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive, www.ehivreview.org, and click on the Issue 4 podcast link. Learning objectives are that after participating in this activity, participants will demonstrate the ability to identify the individual and system-level risk factors and the health implications of poor linkage and retention in HIV medical care, describe evidence-based interventions to promote linkage into and subsequent retention in HIV medical care, and identify key national initiatives and benchmarks for measuring and monitoring HIV care in the U.S. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eHIV Review. Our guest today is Dr. Michael Mugavero, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the Center for AIDS Research Clinical Corps at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Dr. Mugavero has disclosed that he has no financial relationships with any commercial entities relevant to this activity, and that his presentation today will not include discussion of the off-label or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. Dr. Mugavero, welcome to this eHIV Review podcast. Thank you for the invitation. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. In your newsletter issue, you provided a snapshot of the current research into improving HIV linkage and retention in care. What I'd like to do today is translate some of that information into clinical practice. Uh, so if you would please, start us off with a patient presentation. So our first case today is the case of a 57-year-old homeless white male who has ongoing crack cocaine use and is admitted to an inpatient hospital service with subjective fevers, night sweats, and weight loss. As part of his evaluation, he has an HIV ELISA and Western blot that are positive, and his initial CD4 count is 15. After a brief inpatient stay in the hospital, he's discharged to a local shelter, and follow-up is scheduled at a local HIV medical clinic. The patient fails to attend this scheduled visit, and attempts by the clinic personnel to locate him at the shelter are unsuccessful. The problem of late diagnosis of HIV infection. How common is that? So to put some framing on the big picture in terms of HIV diagnosis and where it fits in, in, in recent years, a lot of attention is focused on a continuum of care or the HIV treatment cascade, and that first step is HIV serostatus awareness, HIV testing. Current estimates are that as many as one in five persons or 20% of those living with HIV in the U.S. are unaware, and those are data from the CDC that were recently updated. Late diagnosis is a considerable challenge. Looking at different studies, as many as 50% of persons with HIV are diagnosed late with a CD4 count below 200 or with an opportunistic infection. However, some recent studies, in particular a large study by the NA Accord, show there's been some temporal improvement of late diagnosis and presentation for care in more recent years. The health implications of late diagnosis, both for the individual and on the public health. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that, if you would. We've known for several years from a number of studies that there's dramatic health implications for the individual with late diagnosis and late presentation for care. They include both in the short term, increased morbidity and increased mortality, but also in the longer term. There's residual impact and effect for folks who are diagnosed late and present to care late in terms of experiencing AIDS events and experiencing mortality. 
in recent years, there's been a lot of attention focused beyond the individual implications, the public health implications of late diagnosis and late presentation for care. That late diagnosis represents missed opportunities for earlier intervention to work on HIV risk reduction to prevent transmission, that those who are unaware and diagnosed late have several years where they are at risk of transmitting virus, yet are unaware and unable to receive medical and preventive services. So this idea of missed opportunities and late diagnosis and late presentation for care was a major part of the rationale for the CDC in revising their HIV testing recommendations in 2006 that now supports opt-out testing in all clinical settings for HIV infection. As you described this patient, he failed to attend his follow-up visits and the local clinic could not find him. This case would seem to illustrate that HIV testing alone is not enough and that linkage to medical care is also a considerable problem. What do the data tell us about delayed linkage to care? We have two recent reports from the CDC. One was a meta-analysis and one was based upon their expanded testing initiative that show anywhere between 65 and 75 percent of newly diagnosed persons are linked to care within three to six months, suggesting that anywhere from a quarter to a third of individuals are delaying linkage to care beyond three to six months. What we know about delayed linkage to care is that it's more common in certain groups. So individuals with mental illness, substance use, and also among those with unmet needs for these conditions, as well as other supportive services, including need for housing, transportation, food that are not met, can all be associated with a delayed linkage to medical care. We also know the consequences of delayed linkage to care from recent studies that have shown us that among folks who delay linkage to care, takes longer to start antiretroviral medications, they do not receive preventive and supportive services, and there's been an associated increased risk for mortality, as well as the population risk, public health risk of increasing risk transmission by delaying access and linkage to medical care and starting therapy. Because of these factors in terms of how common it is and the impact it has on both individual and public health, there's been increasing emphasis on how important linkage to care is, both systematically monitoring linkage to care and also intervening to improve linkage to care. And there's been suggestions in recent reports from the Institute of Medicine, as well as the National HIV AIDS Strategy, as well as recent guidelines to promote entry and retention in care, as well as adherence, that approaches that integrate surveillance data systems with medical clinic data may enhance our ability to monitor who is and who is not effectively linked to medical care following diagnosis. What kind of guidance, and, and here I'm also asking about benchmarks and goals, what's been proposed to improve HIV testing and linkage to care? So in recent years, there's been considerable emphasis and attention at a national level to testing and linkage to care. The National HIV-AIDS Strategy was a landmark document released in July of 2010 and included several goals along the treatment cascade, including around testing, serostatus awareness, and linkage to care. So the goals set forth by 2015 include increasing HIV serostatus awareness from the current estimate of roughly 80% up to 90% and also improving linkage to care, currently estimated at 65% up to 85% within three months of a new diagnosis. The National AIDS Strategy also came with the White House requested the Institute of Medicine to generate a report on terms of the data systems and measures to monitor HIV care in the United States. And the IOM recently released their report in March of 2012. And among nine core indicators for clinical care, they included measures for late diagnosis, which was defined as a percentage of persons who were diagnosed with a CD4 count greater than 200, and also a measure for linkage to care with delayed linkage to care being described as a percentage of individuals linked to care within three months of a new diagnosis. Let's go back to the patient you described. Are there approaches that have shown success in locating patients like this and bringing them into long-term care? 
So to date, there's been relatively limited research evaluating how to effectively link persons newly diagnosed into care. There's been much more study in terms of the implications of late testing, late diagnosis. What we do know is that intensive outreach, which was supported by a HRSA SPINS initiative, intensive outreach, particularly to underserved and vulnerable populations, those with substance use disorders, mental illness, youth, women, was an effective strategy to help identify and link persons to care following a new diagnosis. What we know from another HRSA SPINS initiative is the importance of providing supportive services for unmet needs. So in terms of both initial linkage to care, but also subsequent early retention in care, identifying those unmet needs for things like housing, transportation, mental illness, and substance use treatment, as well as case management can be critical in terms of getting folks both linked to care, but also keeping them to care in the following months and years. A quick sidebar here, I want to note to our listeners that a fairly complete set of references to the information Dr. Mugavero is discussing today can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Uh, and Dr. Mugavero, I want to thank you for that case and ask you to bring us another patient, if you would, please. Our second case is a 24-year-old African-American female. She has no history of prior HIV testing and has a preliminary positive HIV rapid test result at a community outreach testing event. She receives post-test counseling and has blood drawn for a confirmatory HIV testing. She next meets with a case manager from a community-based organization that's sponsoring the event and arranges a follow-up visit within one week with that same case manager. At that visit, she's informed that her HIV diagnosis has been confirmed by the additional testing. The case manager calls a local HIV clinic to schedule an initial HIV medical care visit and offers to accompany the patient to that initial visit. Talk to us, if you would, about some of the individual-level factors that can influence successful linkage to care. A recent report from the CDC from their Never in Care study showed that the individual satisfaction with the HIV counseling and testing and referral experience influenced their decision not to enter medical care, specifically the rapport with the tester and the quality of information that was provided to them were things that influenced their decision not to enter care. Other studies have shown us that individuals who are first-time testers who have never tested before are more likely to have delayed linkage to medical care. And other important factors that influence the delayed linkage to care include concerns about privacy, disclosure, and distrust of the healthcare system, as well as an individual's lack of motivation. Several other reports have suggested that there are certain groups that are at higher risk to not be linked to care following a positive HIV test. These include younger individuals, females, racial ethnic minorities, persons who are uninsured and unemployed who have had delayed linkage to care across a number of studies. Another important finding we've discussed previously is the importance of mental illness, substance abuse, and unmet needs for supportive services. So I think this is a pervasive theme around testing and linkage to care that the common comorbid mental illness, substance use, unmet needs for basic services can be major factors in how individuals go across this cascade. Uh, on the other side of the coin now, system-level factors on HIV counseling, testing, and referral. Some recent studies have highlighted important factors at a system level, so beyond the individual level that influence linkage to care following HIV testing. A few studies have shown us that the testing location matters. So among individuals who test in a community setting, there are greater challenges with linkage to care. And there's been a big push to do more testing in community settings to access those individuals who don't traditionally come into contact with the healthcare setting. But important to recognize that when testing in a community setting, there is greater risk for someone to not get linked to medical care. Other factors that have been shown to improve linkage to care include the immediate connection to a case manager and also the continuity of that follow-up as we saw in our case. When you meet the case manager and come back again, you meet that same case manager and develop a relationship. Two recent studies have identified the importance of active versus passive referral for medical care. So active referral 
as in our case, someone offering to assist someone in both making the appointment and sometimes even attending that appointment versus passive referral, giving an individual information about local clinics and resources and having them take that next step on their own. A lot of attention in recent years has focused on the concept of healthcare system navigation, which includes both medical as well as supportive services. So the idea of helping someone navigate not just the medical care system, but also the supportive services that exist in a community for HIV services. Finally, something that a few studies have shown us is the more we can shorten that window, the time from when someone has that first positive test until their initial medical care visit will increase the likelihood that they are linked to medical care. I think that makes a lot of sense when we think about how much goes on in someone's life and the more time that elapses from that life-changing diagnosis into getting into care, the more likely someone is to not take that next step and get into treatment. Intervention approaches to promote long-term care. Which ones have the best evidence that support their use? So as we discussed previously, there really are very few evidence-based interventions at this point in time that have been tested through rigorous studies and we don't have cost-effectiveness studies. But we do know that the best evidence for linkage to medical care is what's called strength-based case management. And this is a CDC, what's called the ARTIS model. And important to note, this is distinct from medical case management. It's the best evidence that's out there has been tested through both a rigorous randomized controlled trial, but also a follow-up effectiveness study that was done with community-based organizations and health departments. And what the intervention focuses on is working with a client on an individual level based upon empowerment and self-efficacy with an interventionist, a case manager typically, having up to five contacts with the individual within 90 days. And what we know from the artist study is that they were able to get 80% of newly diagnosed persons linked to care within six months of the new diagnosis. What about guidance and recommendations? What's available to assist organizations in implementing long-term care programs? I think the first important theme is that we have to integrate linkage to care programs within our HIV counseling, testing, and referral paradigm rather than have them as distinct silos. So we think about this treatment cascade, them being sequential steps of first HIV testing and diagnosis and linkage to care, but the more we can integrate those activities and think of them as separate isolated steps is really the first critical guidance and recommendation. A number of studies, including the artist study, have shown us what worked for them in implementing their linkage to care program. And some of the key findings were that providing ongoing training, support, and supervision to dedicated linkage staff. So there are certain individuals whose job it is to help link those newly diagnosed into medical care, and that the training includes things like counseling skills, HIV knowledge, and knowledge of local resources to help someone navigate the health system. Another important feature of linkage case management is that it's very different than medical case management. So the idea of they're not establishing a longitudinal relationship that's going to go on for years, but it really is a very brief and intense relationship helping someone go from life-changing diagnosis to getting linked to medical care. So the idea of after someone is linked to care, some programs have described graduating or transferring from this linkage case manager to a medical case manager. Another critical feature is establishing and strengthening partnerships and collaboration within and between HIV service providers. So as part of this integration, it's critical that those providing testing and preventive services and those providing medical services are working together and communicating, have memoranda of agreements and understanding, since oftentimes it will be distinct entities that provide the testing services and medical services. So to make this as seamless and integrated as possible takes effort across agencies within a given community.
The final thing for those who are implementing these programs is to develop and adhere to a protocol. So needing to have a well-defined, well-described protocol for linkage to care that is tailored to the local community, but that can be shared and everyone can come back to and make sure we're all on the same page in terms of how we do this within our given local community. Thank you, Doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Michael Mogavero from the University of Alabama at Birmingham in just a moment. Hello, I'm Michael Melia, Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Associate Infectious Diseases Fellowship Program Director at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I'm one of the program directors of EHIV Review. EHIV Review is a combination newsletter and podcast program delivered via email to subscribers. Newsletters are published every other month. Each issue reviews the current literature in areas of importance to infectious disease specialists, primary care physicians, nurse practitioners, and other healthcare practitioners whose work and practice includes treating HIV patients. Bi-monthly podcasts are also available as downloadable transcripts, providing case-based scenarios to help bring that new clinical information into practice in the exam room and at the bedside. Subscription to eHIV Review is provided without charge or prerequisite. Continuing education credit for each issue and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. For more information on this educational activity, to subscribe and receive eHIV Review without charge and access back issues, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. Thank you. And welcome back to this eHIV Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Michael Mogavero, Associate Professor of Medicine and Director of the CIFAR Clinical Corps at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And our topic is linkage and retention in HIV medical care. We've been looking at patient presentations that illustrate how the information Dr. Mogavero presented in his newsletter can be applied in the exam room. And so to continue, doctor, please present us with another case. So our third case today is a 22-year-old African-American male who attends an initial outpatient HIV medical provider visit after recently testing positive for HIV infection. He's in a stable relationship with a male partner. He reports sex with two casual male partners over the past six months, often in the setting of binge alcohol use and with intermittent condom use. His baseline laboratories are obtained after that visit with a one-month follow-up visit scheduled to provide additional education and counseling, to review his test results, and to continue building rapport. At the follow-up visit, the patient is informed that his initial CD4 count is 535 and his viral load is 32,400 copies. The patient and his provider engage in a discussion regarding the timing of initiation of antiretroviral therapy, and a two-month follow-up visit is scheduled to continue this dialogue. The patient is a no-show for his follow-up visit, and he's unable to be reached on his home or mobile phone by clinic staff. Focus us, if you would, doctor, on the salient features of this case. So in this case, we have a patient who is newly diagnosed and is initiating outpatient HIV medical care. And what we know from several recent studies is this is an incredibly vulnerable time. So while adjusting to a life-changing diagnosis, persons are asked to enter care, come to frequent visits, and oftentimes start medications, many of whom haven't traditionally had much contact with the healthcare system. So a very challenging time in the lives of many, this early period of retention and care. We also know that in this case, we have a young African-American man who has sex with men, and this is a group that's disproportionately impacted by the domestic epidemic of HIV. So there's been a recent HRSA SPINS initiative focusing on this group of young MSM of color because this group is so hard hit by the HIV epidemic. Also salient to this case in this presentation is that this patient is engaging in risk transmission behaviors with casual partners, often in the setting of alcohol use with intermittent condom use. 
he has a relatively high CD4 count at care entry, which might play into his behaviors and, and what happens next with him staying in care, and also has this early no-show visit within the first six months. And following that visit, very difficult for the clinic to contact him, which is a common theme when you read across the literature and talk with different clinics around the country. This notion of locator information, contact information, a lot of times once we lose someone or they miss a visit, trying to get hold of them can be incredibly challenging. I'd like to continue on that last point. How common are early missed visits and how do they impact risk factors? So we know after initially establishing care that early no-show visits are exceedingly common, seen in upwards of 60% of persons initiating HIV treatment. In other studies, one-year attrition or loss to follow-up has been as high as 20 or 30%, again, highlighting how important this early period is in terms of missing visits and patients being lost to care. We know from recent studies there are certain groups at risk for poor early retention in care and more likely to have early missed visits. These include younger individuals, racial ethnic minorities, those who use alcohol and other drugs, the uninsured, and also individuals who have higher CD4 counts and are not prescribed antiretroviral therapy are also at increased risk for poor early retention in care. And the thought there is that these individuals don't have the perception of needing to stay in care as they are not prescribed treatment, have high CD4 counts, and are relatively healthy. Coming back to the system level and the HRSA SPINS initiatives highlighted the importance of supportive services. So the provision of services for mental illness when necessary, substance use, as well as transportation, case management, housing being critical for early retention in care. And the Institute of Medicine report we've talked about has indicators for supportive services. So acknowledging how important these supportive services are to keeping someone in care, their indicators include those for mental health and substance abuse referral, for monitoring unstable housing, food security, and unmet transportation needs. Again, highlighting how important these non-medical aspects are to early retention in HIV medical care. What are some of the health implications of early missed visits and poor early retention in care? So coming back to our original case we had and talking about the impact on both individual and public health, again, we see this for early retention in care. So at the individual level, there's challenges across this treatment cascade related to poor early retention in care. They include the next steps along that continuum, including failure to receive antiretroviral therapy, delayed viral load suppression, and greater cumulative viral load burden over the first few years in care. And also risk behaviors are different in those with poor early retention. So greater likelihood of engaging in HIV risk transmission behaviors. And finally, an increased risk of long-term clinical events and mortality. What's important to note about the early missed visit or the early no-show visit is, in and of itself, it likely doesn't lead to these increased risk of clinical events. But it's a warning sign to us as providers telling us this is someone who's at higher risk to either fall out of care not take medicines as prescribed, who maybe has other competing life events that's going to influence their long-term self-care of HIV infection. So again, this notion of the early missed visit being a warning sign to us as providers of this is someone at higher risk for worse health outcomes. At the population level, the recently released HPTN052 study has really bolstered the evidence and enthusiasm for HIV treatment as prevention. The notion of treating those individuals with HIV infection to lower viral load, thereby reducing transmission and spread to others and preventing new infection. So when you couple together that early retention leads to delayed viral load suppression and greater risk behaviors, when we know now that treatment as prevention can work, that early retention influences two of the major factors for new infections in terms of how much virus someone has 
and also their likelihood of engaging in behaviors that might transmit virus to others. Intervention approaches for retention in care, which ones have shown promise? Similar to linkage to care, there really have been very few interventions focusing on retention in care among the new-to-care population. Most of the studies have been done not through randomized control trials, but through cohort designs where there's control groups, but not the rigor of randomization. At the individual level, some studies that have been done have focused on patient navigation and intensive outreach. So two different SPINS initiatives have been conducted one focusing on navigation as an approach that has shown improved retention in care, and also the intensive outreach, especially among vulnerable groups, has shown improved linkage but also retention in care. More recently, the CDC conducted a study through six different medical clinics, including our site at University of Alabama Birmingham, that focused on a system-level intervention. So the notion of creating a clinic culture around the importance of retention in care, including putting up posters and each clinic staff member throughout the encounter giving brief messages to patients about the importance of coming to visits and staying in care. And what that study showed was there was a modest improvement of retention in care, but importantly, among those who were newly diagnosed and entering care and among younger individuals, this system-wide clinic-level intervention seemed to have a greater impact in terms of keeping individuals retained in care. Thank you for that case and those responses, doctor. We've got time for one more case, so if you would please bring us another patient. Our fourth and final case is that of a 45-year-old HIV-infected white male who's released from prison with a CD4 count of 345 and an undetectable viral load. At the time of his prison release, he's provided with a 10-day supply of antiretroviral medications, an ADAP application and a physician certification, and a copy of his most recent labs, as well as information about local HIV treatment centers. 90 days after his release date, state records indicate his ADAP application has not been submitted and he has not yet entered into medical care. And this sounds like it could be a fairly common situation. What do you consider the most salient facts in this case? So this case is introducing a third concept across the idea of engagement in care. So we focused earlier on linkage to care and retention in care. And this third piece is re-engagement in care, so trying to reach out to those who are not in care and bring them back in. It's at the extreme of being poorly retained in care. And most studies focusing on re-engagement have focused on individuals who have entered outpatient HIV medical care but were then lost to follow-up, who spent 12 months or longer out of care. It's really important that in recent years, other priority populations have emerged. Those include the recently incarcerated, the recently hospitalized, and also retesters. So as there's expanded testing outreach initiatives, there are many folks who are testing positive who were previously known to have HIV, but are testing again. And these are all opportunities to help take someone who is not in outpatient treatment and bring them back and link them into outpatient medical treatment. We know that among these groups, some of the challenges with re-engagement include, again, mental illness, substance use, and homelessness are incredibly common. And interventions to work with this group typically require intensive time, resources, and supportive services. So these are groups that are often have many, many unmet needs, very vulnerable groups that require intensive intervention to work towards getting them either from prison or the hospital or the community out of care, reconnected and re-engaged back with outpatient medical services. Population estimates regarding retention and care in the United States, what do the data say? Historically, it's been challenging to generate national estimates, and part of the reason for that is that there are numerous data systems that are used to capture service utilization among persons with HIV. These include public health surveillance systems that are reported to health departments and the CDC, 
clinic-based cohorts that are used to capture utilization among persons who actually access care, and also administrative claims databases, so among insurance providers accessing services, using those databases to see when folks use services and use medications. And the recent Institute of Medicine report highlights some of the challenges and limitations of these different data systems, highlighting the different roles and how maybe integrating these systems might improve some of our measurement. A recent estimate from the CDC, a study that was done using their surveillance-based data, publicly reported CD4 counts and viral loads, indicated that roughly only half of patients were retained in medical care. This is similar to estimates from roughly a decade ago, that half of persons with HIV being in medical care and retained over time. A recent meta-analysis also from the CDC published by Gary Mark suggested that retention was a little bit higher, about 59%, although it was important that different measures of retention were used and that retention was worse the longer the observation period was. So if a study looked at retention over one or two years versus four or five years, it looks worse if you look at a longer period of time. So it seems like we have 40 to 50% of persons who are not being retained in care. What can you tell us about recent developments in monitoring retention in HIV care? The first critical step is to improve our measurement and monitoring and surveillance in an actionable way. And in recent years, there's been a strong push to use our public health surveillance data to both monitor, but also to give us actionable data to intervene to try to improve linkage and retention in care. And this is a major shift in many ways that historically, public health surveillance data was data that was reported and captured and kept internally, but not fed back to be actionable and lead to intervention. So really a major shift in the paradigm to using surveillance data with a number of high-profile reports in New England Journal of Medicine and others talking about the public health needs of using surveillance data to improve retention in HIV care. And there's also several examples around the country of integrating public health surveillance data with medical data to both monitor but also intervene to improve linkage and retention in care. There's a number of projects, notably a project in Louisiana as well as a project in Washington and King County, where the public health officials are working closely with the medical providers to use the public health surveillance data and medical clinic data to help identify those individuals who have HIV and are not currently in care to try to better link and retain them in medical services. How does all of this fit into the overarching goals of the National HIV AIDS Strategy? The National HIV AIDS Strategy has three primary goals that include, number one, reducing the number of new infections, number two, improving access and healthcare outcomes, and number three, overcoming disparities in health inequities. And it's important to point out that linkage and retention in care play a prominent role in all three of those goals and play a critical role if we're going to achieve these goals by 2015. There have been distinct benchmarks set by the National AIDS Strategy for HIV serostatus awareness, for linkage to care, and for retention in care, as well as viral load suppression. So there's goals across each step of that treatment cascade. And there's other recent initiatives that have been focusing on retention in care, including the in-care campaign, which is among Ryan White Clinic, supported by HRSA and the HIV Quality Center, trying to identify and give systems clinics best practices to monitor and act upon improving retention in care. And there's guidance from the Institute of Medicine, so their recent report on data systems and measures for both medical and supportive core indicators on assessing, are we achieving the goals of the national strategy? And finally, there's increased emphasis on integration. So I think there's really been a big shift where things historically, both at the federal level but also at the local level, 
have been somewhat distinct in terms of service provision and surveillance and monitoring, where some centers and some local agencies focused on testing, others prevention, others on medical services, and others supportive services. And now there's greater focus on integrating these activities, focusing on initiatives like test and treat or testing to linkage and care that span diagnosis to viral load suppression. So across an individual's treatment cascade, they're going to interface with multiple agencies and multiple individuals. And the idea that the better we can integrate our service provision, our service delivery at a federal level and a local level, the more likely we are to achieve the success set forth in the strategy. Doctor, thank you for presenting those cases. Uh, and again, I want to remind our listeners that a fairly complete set of references to the information Dr. Mongovero has discussed today can be found in the transcript version of this podcast. Let me shift gears now, Doctor, and ask you to look to the future for us. What do you see happening in terms of improving linkage and retention in care? Historically, linkage and retention in care has been viewed more through the lens of service provision than research per se. And in more recent years, it's shifted where there's not a lot of scientific focus on studying linkage and retention in care. And I think the way forward, what's critical is that we have both paths occurring simultaneously and informing each other so that we learn from quality improvement and best practices in clinical care while also conducting the studies with rigorous randomized designs to test interventions. And I think ultimately, if we're going to improve linkage and retention in care, it's going to take a combination of clinical practice-based evidence as long as clinical trial-based evidence to ultimately get us to achieve those goals in the National Aid Strategy. Thank you, Doctor. To wrap things up, I'd like to review the key points of what we've been discussing today. Let's begin with identifying the individual and system-level risk factors and health implications of poor linkage or retention in HIV medical care. What we saw in the cases today is that there are certain individual factors that predispose individuals to have worse linkage and retention in care. These include things like younger age, being uninsured, racial ethnic minorities, as well as unmet needs for mental health and substance use services, as well as other supportive services. At a system level, key features included things like active referral for care, shortening the time window from when someone tests positive to their first medical care visit, And then also we saw the health implications, so that poor linkage and retention in medical care influenced not just individual health in terms of disease progression and mortality, but also the critical role it plays for population health and public health. In this era of treatment as prevention, linkage and retention in care are critical pieces if we are going to improve and reduce the number of new infections occurring in the U.S. The evidence-based interventions to promote linkage into and subsequent retention in HIV medical care? As we discussed in our cases today, there really are very few interventions that have currently been tested for linkage and retention in care, although much research is ongoing and this will certainly change in the coming years. But as of right now, the best evidence that we have for linkage to care is the CDC's ARTIS, the Strength-Based Linkage Case Management Study, and for retention in care are the intensive outreach interventions as well as patient navigation interventions. Again, I think right now, while there's a paucity of evidence, there's much research ongoing, and in the future, we're sure to see more interventions, including interventions that span across the treatment cascade. And finally, the key national initiatives and benchmarks for measuring and monitoring HIV care in the U.S. The large initiatives that have gone forward include the National HIV AIDS Strategy and the IOM Report, And also campaigns like the in-care campaign, focusing more on the service side and the clinic side in terms of quality improvement. In terms of benchmark, the National AIDS Strategy really gives us national targets across the treatment cascade, focusing from zero status awareness, increasing that to 90%, 
improving linkage to care to 85% within three months, and improving retention in care to 80% among those who are Ryan White clients. So I think now for the first time, we have clear goals, clear benchmarks, clear targets, as well as a strategy for how we're going to measure these things and what we might do to try to improve them. Dr. Michael Mogavero from the University of Alabama at Birmingham, thank you for participating in this EHIV Review podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been my pleasure. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the EHIV Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed, CME-certified literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with HIV. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive EHIV review via email, please go to our website, www.ehivreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. EHIV Review is supported by educational grants from Abbott Laboratories, Bollinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Inc., and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Thank you for listening. This program is copyright 2012 with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.